Thank you, Ruth Ann. We think about God's Word tonight, a couple of questions, and I'm looking for response. Who are the best lovers? And I'm not talking about love as the world might describe it, you know, between a guy and a girl, or man and woman, but in a general way, who are the best lovers? Some of you look at me like, where are you coming from with that? <laughs> you know, if you think about that in the community of believers, maybe I better clarify that, you know. Who are the best lovers? While you're thinking about that one, I'll throw another one out. What is needed for contentment? What is needed for contentment? I would the first one, I would be humble. Humble? Okay. Okay. Any other response? Who are the best lovers? What is needed for contentment? Knowing God. This morning we discussed, well, last Sunday morning and this morning, discussed Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the fact that Christ broke down the middle wall partition, you know, between the Jew and the Gentile. There is unity, and we described a variety of relationships, you know, within the body of Christ that would not include or would include beyond the Jew and Gentile, just to make it practical in our world today. And according to Ephesians 2, there's a breadth of unity in the body of Christ, in the sense that it says in verse 18, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. But there is also a depth to that unity, as found in verse 19. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. So Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, black, white, Latino, and so on, in Christ become one. And there's a supernatural unity there, or a supernatural depth and breadth of community to make the glory of the invisible God visible. When you take a Jew and Gentile, and they're one in Christ, and they were at odds, and they basically despised one another in Bible times, and they became one in Christ, that is putting on display the glory of the invisible God. And that becoming visible in relationships on this earth. So we want to interact some tonight on fellowship, community. And I'm talking within the body of Christ in light of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. What makes that supernatural? And supernatural I would define as togetherness and commitment we experience that transcends all natural bonds because of the commonality that we have in Christ. 
We're dealing with a togetherness and a commitment that is in Christ, and it transcends natural bonds. Now think about the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews would consider the Gentiles dogs, and dogs was not a good term in Bible times. But now we have the dog and the Jew, one in Christ. And it's not the idea of putting up with each other or tolerating one another. Rather, it's a commitment that is stronger than blood. We talk about a relationship within the family. We say that's very strong. But as you read Scripture, the togetherness and the commitment within the body of Christ, because of Christ, supersedes even the family commitment. It's a stronger bond. When you think about that togetherness, that commitment, Ruth and I get married. I think even before we get married and we entered into our marriage and first couple years, we both said we will not talk about divorce. It will not be mentioned in our house because that is not an option. That was a commitment. We may fight if we want to, but we got to work it out. <laughs> Within the body of Christ, the commitment. It's like super glue. You know, it just hangs on and hangs on. A togetherness, a commitment. It's an older teacher stepping aside and allowing maybe a teenager or a young adult to teach for a period of time so that they get some experience. It's just sticking together. Supernatural, the biblical idea of God working in time and space to do what confounds the natural laws and the relationships of the world. Let's take the political campaign that is currently going on. I'm assuming once a Republican and a Democrat candidate are selected, that some things will kind of die down and they'll begin to consider, well, who do I want for my running mate? So whoever makes it on the Republican side might pull in one of the other Republican candidates, you know, as a vice presidential candidate. Wouldn't be interesting if Sanders and uh, Clinton, you know, ran on the same ticket. But see, that's not supernatural. It's tied in with politics. And there are many things that happen in our world today that deal with common interest. Here we're dealing with the haves and the have-nots economically that become one in Christ. We're dealing with the high and mighty and the social outcast that can sit down and worship together and share together and are committed to one another because of Christ. We're dealing with a diehard sports fan and one who has no interest whatsoever in sports. And they're glued together. They're committed to one another. They will stick together. That's where Paul is coming from when he talks about the fellowship, the community, the oneness that is in Christ. Now let's take our Bibles and go to Ephesians and look at several scriptures 
But Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, thinking again about loving, contentment, and in light of what was mentioned to this point. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. And this is in the context of spiritual blessings that God has given. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Redemption, buying out from slavery to sin, forgiveness, letting go of sin because of Christ. And that's in relation to God's grace. I go over to chapter 4 and verse 1. Chapter 1, he talks about our calling and what we have in Christ. Chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. There's a parallel between redemption and forgiveness and the calling. And we'll tie this all together as we go along. We won't turn to Ephesians 2, but let's go to Ephesians 4. Look at Ephesians 4 and verse 29. Well, let's... We'll pick up with verse 32. This is after three chapters of being in Christ. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Notice the forgiveness that is extended is to be as God forgave you in Christ. Chapter 5 and verse 1, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God, love, just as Christ loved. Christ's love influencing the way We love. Let's go to one of the Gospels, to Luke chapter 7. To Luke chapter 7. Again, we're leaping into a context in Luke, and I realize that the Gospels are revealing Christ, who he was in his character, his identity, and his being. And in chapter 7, we find that Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. And that creates some tension. Luke chapter 7, let's begin reading with verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now remember who Christ is. He's the creator. He's life. He's light. He's the son of God. He's the lamb of God. He's the shepherd. And so on. And notice who the woman is, a woman who had lived a sinful life. Had lived a sinful life. 
When the Pharisee, in verse 39, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And what goes through your mind when you read the Pharisee's thoughts and he says that she is a sinner? What does that imply about himself? He was better. Jesus answered him. How could Jesus answer him when the Pharisee didn't say anything? It says the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. No, Jesus is beyond the normal human. So Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, as you think about Jesus' question here, a denarii was about a day's wages in that culture. So let's just bring it over to today for sake of some monetary value. I'm not sure what the average wage is, but let's say someone is earning $15 an hour. In 50 days, that person would earn $6,000. In 500 days, that would be $60,000. So we're dealing with a substantial amount of money, especially in that culture. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One had 500 denarii, the other 50. The guy just canceled the debt. So Jesus questioned, now which of them will love him more? Now, Simon recognized immediately, I suppose, the one who, who had the bigger debt canceled. Seems like a natural response. Jesus says, you have judged correctly. So he compliments the Pharisee. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Very obvious, he did. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. That's quite a strong rebuke to the Pharisee. He calls her, Or he's thinking this woman's a sinner. Doesn't Jesus know she's a sinner? But yet he had provided no water, didn't give a kiss. 
and then put oil on the head of Jesus. Jesus says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been given little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The point of the account that Jesus shares seems to be that forgiveness results in loving. A biblical scholar, G.B. Caird, summed up this account very well. Her love was not the ground of a pardon she had come to seek, but the truth of truth, or proof rather, of a pardon she had come to acknowledge. Her love was not the ground of a pardon she had come to seek, but the proof of a pardon she had come to acknowledge. Something was going on in her life even before she came to Jesus. And if you look at the parallel Gospels, some other things are said. And Jesus says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. There's a parallel between forgiveness and love. In Ephesians, there's a parallel between understanding in Christ and love. And you'll find that in 1 John chapter 4. We won't turn there, but it is there. So a couple of thoughts. Forgiveness is what causes love. It's not the only thing, but it's very directly related to loving in light of Ephesians. This is the point of the parable in Luke. Our love is in proportion to our understanding of forgiveness and being in Christ. The Pharisee is thinking, surely Jesus knows this woman is a sinner. So here's the sinner, and I'm over here. But as you read the Gospels, as you read the epistles, all sinners are in the same boat. Now one may commit more acts of sin than another. But we humans are very proficient at comparing sins, aren't we? So we talk about someone in prison, we think, oh, they're really bad. They're a sinner just like I am, just like you are. Well, I would never do that. But you might gossip about somebody. Oh, I never think of stealing something, but you might whine about our government. No, we all are sinful within. And in Ephesians 2, 
Paul brings that out. Because our forgiveness and in Christ are supernatural, we have the ability as Christians to love God and other believers supernaturally. When Paul says, forgive as God forgave you, that's supernatural. People can really be nasty and unkind at times. Any worse than we sinners are towards God? Forgive as God forgave you. Forgive as you have forgiveness in Christ. To love God is to love other Christians. There is no exception to this truth. 1 John 4 talks about that. Supernatural forgiveness and in Christ drives supernatural love. Some of you may have heard me mention already a guy by the name of J.T. Miller who lived in Scottsboro, Alabama. I was pastoring a church down there when I was in college. I met J.T. And every Sunday morning, 8 or 8.30, we would go to prison together. We'd go to the county prison, which was in Scottsboro, and we went with an intent to talk to the inmates about Christ. And some of those guys were in and out of prison. Uh, There was a lot of bootlegging in that part of the country at that time. And you get picked up for bootlegging, you get thrown into prison and so on. JT loved loved those guys in prison. He wanted to go tell them about Jesus. He loved his wife. He loved his kids and his grandchildren. But it was not always that way. J.T. was well-known in Alabama. Been in and out of prison quite often himself because he was a bootlegger. Very cruel to his family, his wife and his children. His wife and children could give accounts of how cruel their father could be, how cruel he could be as a husband. He was known for not being a nice guy. There was a guy by the name of Nolan Roach just kept talking to him about Jesus and kept telling him about Jesus. And uh, the point came where God, through his spirit, got a hold of JT and convicted him of his sin and he came to faith in Christ. Radical change in his life. Quit bootlegging. Never in prison again behind the bars. His response to his wife changed tremendously. His response to his children changed tremendously. He became a fairly proficient lover. He was forgiven much. That influenced his love life, his contentment. He came to know God, he came to know Christ, and ties in with some of the responses you gave earlier. But forgiveness deeply impacted him. I didn't know him in his days of not being such a nice guy. 
I knew him in his days of wanting to come to church and wanting to sing his favorite song and wanting to go to prison to talk to people about Christ and trying to respond to his family. So he could sit down with a guy like me who had never been in prison. I don't think I ever did anything to my wife or my kids like he did to his wife and kids. But there's a bond developed because of Christ. Supernatural forgiveness and being in Christ. Apart from the miraculous, it is impossible. There's no forgiveness apart from Christ. There's no in Christ apart from Christ. When it comes to forgiveness and being in Christ, the doctrine of sin is very, very important. Again, we label sin. Sin. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the primary Hebrew and Greek word for sin is basically a voluntary rebellion against a good and holy God. It's missing the point of life, which is a relationship with God. You say, I was never like that. Then you're probably not a Christian. Because we have all sinned. The doctrine of sin, it offends the perfect justice of God. We were separated from God. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 brings that out very clearly. Our problem is sin, not lack of meaning. Oh, if we just had meaning in life. No, our problem is sin. So Christ became our sacrifice. In essence, our lawyer died for us. God could be just, according to Romans 3, and the justifier of sinners. God is just, he says, the penalty for sin is death. And then he turns around and says, I will let my son die in your place. So he's just. But he can justify the sinner because the penalty was paid by Christ. From what I've read, one night in New York City years ago, Mayor LaGuardia was setting in for one of the magistrates, which he did occasionally just to be able to identify with the people of New York City. An old man was brought in, and the reason he was brought in was because he had stolen a loaf of bread. And Mayor LaGuardia said, the law is the law. You stole, 
I'm going to fine you $10. The guy didn't have a penny on him. I'm going to fine you $10. Merrill Guardia reached into his pocket, pulled out his bills, took out a $10 bill and gave it to the man. He said, pay your fine. Mary LaGuardia was just. The penalty for stealing is a fine of $10. But he was a justifier in that he gave what was needed. That's what God has done. So when we think about sin and we think about forgiveness, Christ became our sacrifice. That moves us to love, to grant forgiveness. Our forgiveness is profoundly supernatural. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We followed the God of this world, the ways of this world. We followed the desires of our own sinful nature, and we were children of wrath. So who's a modern day, what you would say is a modern day sinner? You know, someone that has really committed a horrible crime that is currently living and that is in prison. Can you give me the name of someone? Charles Manson. Everyone know who Charles Manson is? He's in a prison in California for killing Sharon Tate. Am I got Got the name right. And I don't know if you ever read his book, Helder Skelter, or if you ever looked at him. When I say looked at him, not personally, but just, it almost seemed like the evil is coming out of him. Are you willing to admit that you are from the same mold of sin as Charles Manson. You say, I never killed. I'm not saying you did. But we're equally dead in sin, equally separated from God. Oh, some of us commit more acceptable sins than others. But our forgiveness is profoundly supernatural. I don't think anyone will say, I volunteer to spend the rest of Charles Manson's time in prison and he can go free. Think about that in the context of supernatural. Well, before we get there, our being in Christ, as we discussed in Ephesians, comes at the cost of Christ being the Lamb of God, our substitute. I remember sitting with a guy in one of the interview rooms in Luzerne County Prison and talking to him. And he shared about his murder. He killed a guy. And he explained the circumstances that, in which it took place. 
And he freely shared that because his sentence had already been given. He was waiting to move on to state prison. And we talked a while and talked some about God. First time I'd ever met the guy. The only time I ever met the guy because he got moved before I got back up to see him again. But in the context of our conversation, we talked about Christ being his substitute. I could say to him, I came via repentance and faith. And I could say to him, you have to come by repentance and faith. The cross is the level ground. Every sinner comes the same way. The one that may have committed terrible sins comes by repentance and faith. The one who may be, quote unquote, a Pharisee, who thinks everyone else is a sinner, comes by repentance and faith. We love God to a large extent in the way we have experienced his forgiveness and being in Christ. If I were to take a sheet of paper and start to list my sins, listing my sins today, the sheet of paper or sheets and sheets and sheets of paper would be much longer than it would have been 20 years ago. Oh, you're sinning more, Pastor. I see myself more clearly what I'm like outside of Christ or what I was like outside of Christ. I think I'm becoming more like Christ. Enjoying him more, but seeing the depth of my heart outside of Christ. That's why sometimes those who have been raised in a religious environment may struggle with loving because they think I really wasn't that bad. Read. Romans 1, 2, and 3. We're all equally separated from God, even though our sins may be different. We love God by loving those around us, especially in our local body or any given local church. God, I love you. How are you showing it? Loving others. We say, I don't like that person over there. Go out of your way to show them love. Well, they're different than me. Go out of your way to show them love. Well, they might reject me. Go out of your way to show them love. See, in Christ, we become a unit. And this supernatural love is based upon what Christ has done, our forgiveness. And that's willing to step beyond our comfort zone. This is on the illustrator point. My mother-in-law and I got along fine. When Ruth Ann and I were dating... I really had to step outside of my comfort zone. Her family 
or was believers. The reason I ought to step out kind of outside of my comfort zone is because they just talk, 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 talk. And the question was asked of them, and they began to answer even before they had the time to think about it. I'm not criticizing them. That's the way they were. See, I came from a family that when a question was asked, you would sit and be quiet for a half a minute or a minute or two, and then you would respond after giving it careful thought. So I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone to love her family because I'm going to go over there and I don't have a chance to talk. To this day, some people in her family think I can't talk. (laughs) Well, does Dan talk? Yeah. Well, I never heard him. Well, you never gave him a chance. And I'm not criticizing her family, and I'm not bragging in her family. She came to our family, and she, she was scared because she made a statement. <clears throat> At a supper table, and my brother said, well, how do you know that's true? She wasn't used to being interrogated on her thinking. So both of us had to step outside of our comfort zone to love, and I say that in a light way, but stop and think about love in the context of the body of Christ. Those who have been forgiven much will love much. In light of 1 John 4 and verse 20, there doesn't seem to be any exceptions. Forgiveness in Christ changes us. Oh, we may struggle. We may say, God, I can't. And God says, I know you can't. That's why there's a power at work in you beyond what you can ask or imagine. And you can try some of those impossible, or what you consider impossible things. So who are the best lovers? Those who are in Christ, those who have been forgiven supernaturally. Some of you gave some responses, and that all ties in. What is needed for contentment? Christ, forgiveness, pursuing holiness. Father, we thank you for extending your grace to us. We love you. We want to be yielded to you. We want to show our love by loving others. And thank you that in Christ we have that ability. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.